0: Good evening, Hope Church. Let's open up to 1 John chapter 1 as we continue our new series. I encourage you for such a uh, short epistle, I encourage you to go and read this uh, a couple of times frequently throughout the week. Um, I-, I was going to say if you can, but I know you can, and uh, uh, it- it'll do-, do you good to be more familiar with the language, with the words, with the phrasing, with the Structure the more familiar you are, the more you'll be able to get out of each sermon. So, I encourage you to frequent yourself in this book throughout the week. And uh, we'll pick up our reading tonight from verse 5 so you can start finding your place there. What we've seen is that, that this church or group of churches that John is writing to is the church of Ephesus and surrounding towns where there had been a large exodus of Christians. There had been the false teacher, Serenthus and the Gnosticism that he was teaching, or at least the early stages of Gnosticism, had spread in the area. He had set up a teaching school in Ephesus. He had uh, started promoting all of these heresies and fooling Christians, deceiving what, what the church had thought were faithful members, and taking them away to believe a lie and live in sin and reject the core truths of the Christian faith. And, and, and at this point, John is writing so that he might come in and thunder against the, the false teaching and lies of this false teacher, Serenthus. The apostle of love and thunder brings truth, he brings gospel reality to push back the lies, but also to reaffirm and reassure the church. We said last week, as they were hurting, not just because they had, they had been confused about doctrine but also because having seen such a large exodus, such a, a huge falling away, they, they were tempted to think like we might be, as we see maybe heroes of the faith or maybe friends or family members walk away from Jesus, or but yet still affirm Jesus in word. They'll call themselves Christian, but they start affirming things that, that we have been taught are heretical, maybe they're new age-ish, maybe they're, maybe they're affirming things of, 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 of heretical nature, but call themselves Christians. Now we start questioning Am I right? Am I in the light? Am, how do I know that I'm not the one who is wrong? And to this church, not to Serentis' tribe, but to this church, John writes, to reaff- reassure, reaffirm, and build up in the truth that the message they believed is that which is the eternal message that came through God's Son in the incarnation. He's writing to them to remind them that this message which casts out the darkness is this, that God is light. Look at verse 5. And from there we will read. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Not sin. May God bless this word to us this evening. All theology starts with the right thinking of God. All of our theology, whether it's Christology, pneumatology, harmatology, ecclesiology, eschatology, every element of our theology starts with and is defined by our theology proper as theologians or the, the doctrine, our understanding, the truths, the study of God himself, who he is, what his nature is? Theology proper is the key, the foundation, the starting point for all of our theology and so John starts here the very nature and essence of God and his character God is Light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If you're wrong about God, you start going wrong about every other branch of theology. And if you're wrong about God, you start going wrong on all of the branches of the Christian life. But it also sort of works back the opposite way. If you can, if you can identify where somebody's or your theology is askew, if, if you realize that, then what you have to recognize is that somehow that reflects a misunderstanding you have of God himself. Or we can go even further and say, if we look at the theology that you have or the, the practical way that you live the Christian life, if there's error there, we can backtrack and say that there is also, this is stemming from a misunderstanding of the nature and the person of God himself. That is what John does tonight. He doesn't just write into this uh, arena of false teaching and start saying where they're wrong on their branches of theology and where they're wrong on how they live the Christian life. He will do that, but he starts with the very nature of God that they have gone wrong on, which brought about every other cascading error, and it is this, that God is light. In him there is no light. Darkness at all. And all of the three deceptions, all of the three acts of self-deception that John's going to cover tonight about sin and us is going to come back to this all-encompassing foundational reality about God. He is light. Not that he is a light, not that he is the light. He is, in his essence, lightness. He is the source of all that can be called light. He is Light. The gospel starts with God. The Christian life starts with God. All of our theology starts with this, that God is light. And therefore, the application he's going to make into the Christian life is that anyone who will make claims of living in God's light will be living according to the character and pattern set out for us in God's word. That to have fellowship with him who is light will will be followed by a life lived of light. That, that, that really is quite simple for us to understand. John is saying those who follow the light, those who have fellowship with the light, will live in a pattern of acknowledging their sin, confessing their sin, and being cleansed by their sin. And that is what it means to walk in the light. All of the lies that the false teachers affirmed, we also ourselves have a habit of affirming. So so we're going to look at this and look at theologically and historically what those Gnostics were saying, what Serenthus was teaching and how John goes against it, but we have to also then make application to us and see how are we telling ourselves these lies? How do we tolerate or allow these lies to sneak in to how we relate to God and to ourselves? So let's start looking at these, the three lies that are told by the false teachers and the little false teacher inside of every single one of us. Look at verse 6. Starts out if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The false teachers had said it that it is it is possible to be in fellowship with God while living in patterns that had traditionally been called sin. These gnostics had tried to say that, that I know that my lifestyle, you're gonna go and read your book. You're going to go pick up the old Torah, the Old Testament. You're going to read the Ten Commandments. You're going to read what the old-style apostles said. And you're going to realize that they would call my style of living sin. Okay? But I'm here to tell you this new, evolving, progressive, liberal Christianity, right? These guys were, were uh, uh, Episcopalian priests. That, that, that's what these guys were in our modern day. The sort of pastors who were fine with gay marriage, With were fine with female pastors, fine with just about every abomination that you can find under the rainbow, they were these types of men. But they were saying that because God has progressed, since the message has progressed, since since holiness in itself has sort of changed style from what the apostles wrote, what we can say is this, that we have fellowship with God while living in darkness because darkness itself is just another part of God. This is what the apostles missed out. This is in fact the very core of all Eastern pantheistic and panentheistic views of God but right? this is what is called the yin and the yang that we are just all a part of one eternal one and an eternal universal uh, nature of the universe so that you might pick up one thing and say this is sin this is evil this is darkness and that may be true from your objective Western close-minded point of view but from another point of view It's really just a different spectrum in the light. It's all within the one, and we are all within God. This is what the Gnostics would teach, that in God, there is light, which has traditionally been called righteousness, and there is darkness, which has traditionally been called sin, but we're here to tell you, no, no, it's not sin, it's just darkness. It's light, and there's darkness in God. And and at least part of this is coming from the fact that they had said this dualism, as we said last week, this this dualism between the spirit world and the, and the uh, physical world. The spirit world is good. Your spirit is good. The fleshly world is evil. Your body is evil. It's just a prison holding your spirit captive. And therefore, it doesn't actually matter much what happens with your body. It doesn't matter. You can go to the prostitute. You can go to the uh, pub house and get drunk. You can go and beat people up. You can hold back your goods from other people. Because at the end of the day, the physical world is a natural, evil, physical world. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you heard that your king was coming to rescue you while you are in prison in some enemy kingdom, you're not going to be very afraid of what he's going to say if he comes and looks at the state of your cell. He's not going to come and get annoyed at you because you were writing and marking down the days on your cell wall. He's not going to get annoyed that you left it in a mess and that you didn't take good care of it because the whole point of his coming is leaving it behind. That's how they thought of the body. So they would say this yin, yang, light, darkness, it's, it's all in God. And you can see why John writes, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That theology of God means that their theology of the Christian life, these false teachers' way of viewing how you can live, is sin, is wrong, is unable to be brought into unity with the Christian gospel. While they will say darkness is not sin, it's just another shade of the rainbow, we're okay to live in it. John says there is no darkness in God at all. And therefore, if we say we have fellowship with him while walking in the darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. If we say, in other words, we're in fellowship with God the light, while living in a lifestyle that the word calls sin and defend it as acceptable... Are we going to say that this is actually allowable? This is fine. God's okay with this. I asked him. He told me. I followed my heart. It's okay. This, this, what is traditionally called seen, is actually not seen. It's acceptable. We are saying and we are living a lie. There is no darkness in God. I remember being on a, uh, a camping trip with a bunch of guys once, and uh, one of the guys who was coming was notoriously late and notoriously bad with maps and cars. And we were waiting for him and there was very patchy reception and, and we'd fight, so we couldn't just call him up, send him a text, where are you? we had tried, we'd send him heaps, we were just waiting, he's going to turn up eventually and, and we end up getting a phone call from him from some random number we didn't know because he, he'd wa- waved somebody down on the side of the road, he'd gotten their phone, he was able to make a call because they were with Telstra and not with Slotophone. And so they made this call and he's talking to us over the phone he goes, I don't know where you guys are camped in this national park. I've gone past the waterfall and I went past a huge lookout and past the dam on my right and I cannot find you and we're all looking at each other. There's no dam in this national park. We got out the map and we're sort of looking on our phones at, at where he could possibly be and we're like, I don't know what you're talking I'm so sorry. You're not in the right national park. There's no such thing as a lookout here. We're in a valley. What are you talking about? And it was hours before he came. He ended up taking his tiny little beat-up car down a four-wheel drive track. It didn't make it out of the valley. True story. That's for another time. And this is how John wants us Christians to think through professed Christians who say, they're just walking in darkness. God's okay with it. I'm, I'm in that section of Christian life where I'm allowed to sin, and we should sort of look at our map given to us in the Word of God and go, no, there's, there's actually no area of allowable pro- uh, pornographic addiction in the Christian life. No, actually, I'm sorry, I've looked at this. You can't just say you've fallen out of love and choose to unbiblically divorce your wife. I'm, I'm sorry, I've looked at this, and there's actually nowhere on the map anywhere where you're allowed to complain and gossip and call it prayer, prayer There's actually no room for this on our map. You're on the wrong map. You're not in the right national park of Christianity. You're in darkness. There's no darkness on this map. There's no darkness at all in God. So wants John to to encourage this church where others were making these defences, making this theological point about the Christian life, defending their sin, John is saying, no, they're not in the light whatsoever. He talks about walking in the light. There's so much room for misunderstanding and misapplication in, these, in this language. He says that uh, in, verse, in the end of verse 6 and beginning of verse 7, we lie, we don't practice the truth, but... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, etc. When he talks about walking in the light, the the, the best analogy I think I can give, and I think this would be in the background of what John is saying, is if we can throw our minds back to the Exodus, back to the, the traveling of the Jews through the wilderness when God led them in the darkness by night by a pillar of fire and light that it's, it's really quite easy to distinguish who are God's people and who are not God's people. God's people are the ones who, not all with the same level of clarity, not all of them with the same level of, of perfection or holiness or nearness to the light, sure, but all of them are following the light. They're walking in that direction. They're not walking in the opposite direction towards Egypt. They're not outside of the light, in the darkness, loving and living in their sin, this this is not simply, and we need to be able to make the distinction in the Christian life between those who walk in darkness and those who stumble in the light. How often there are the tender-hearted Christians read this chapter trying to struggle through their lack of assurance and they would put themselves as somebody who doesn't walk in the light. I'm not perfect. I'm not always under the shining brightness of the glory of God. Not, not my level of holiness. And therefore, they conclude right then and there, I'm not in the truth. I don't have the word of God within me. I'm not a follower of God. I'm not walking in the light. But to many of us, I wouldn't overextend it and say all of us, but to many of us, we are are those walking in the light, but we're those straggling, we're those maybe letting ourselves get to the back of the pack, We're, we're tolerating the shadows and the shades in our life and we're stumbling while we're in the light, but nonetheless, we're in the light. When he talks of walking in the light, he's talking about lifestyle He's talking about pattern, and he's talking about overall direction of your life. Those who live in a direction, a pattern, a lifestyle that is against what the word of God defines as righteousness, those people are out of union and fellowship with God. He says there, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. So here's two two elements of our, of our walking in the light. First of all, it's, it's a walk. And as we've just said, that's an overall pattern, aim, and direction. But also, he says, as he is in the light. Now, now here's again where we can condemn ourselves if we, if we stand ourselves up against 1 John there and go, well, I am walking in the light, but not like he's in the light. I mean, what a standard, what a comparison to just make you depressed over your level of, of holiness and, and lightness. I'm in the light, but, but not like God's in the light. He is light through and through and I stand here and I see my own sin, my own continual struggles. I don't think what John is trying to do is set up some infinite high standard which you're supposed to be meeting to be able to then say that you're walking in the light. What he's saying is that if you are in the light, the way that God is in the light, in the kind of way that God is in the light, if you're in the light that God is casting, that God's word is shedding into our lives, then that is somebody who is walking in the light. Not, not not perfectly, but truly in communion with God. The kind of light that God is shedding and sharing. No Jew who's following the pillar of fire through the desert would be able to say, I am as illuminated as that burning, blazing pillar of fire coming down from the stars of heaven. No one of them could, but they can still truly say, I am walking in the presence of, in the direction of, following after the light of God. That is a key distinction of Christians. And I love what he says the effects are. I also hate what he says the effects are because it's, it's like I said last week, it's just not as Paul-esque. It's not as Pauline. He just said, let me just share with you a preacher's frustration. When you're writing a sermon, you're trying to pair up uh, words and ideologies and and themes and it's really easy if he had said if we say in verse six if we say we have fellowship with him but walk in darkness we're lying but if we walk in the light we have fellowship with him see how that's just a perfect sealed circle you say you have fellowship with him but you are uh, walking in darkness you don't have fellowship with him but if you walk in the light you do have fellowship with him but he goes and throws a a, a, a in the works by saying if you do walk in the light, then you have fellowship with one another. He, just, he changes the theme. Do you know how hard it makes it to write a sermon when he does that? So annoying and inconsiderate. I'll be talking about that when I see him. But he, I think we see behind this the, the importance of what he is saying here is meeting the error of the Gnostics. The one thing that Gnostics would hate is to talk about a fundamental Christian equality and unity. They don't have fellowship with you, weak, hoi polloi Christians, the way that I have fellowship with God. I mean, me and God are on a different level. I don't walk in your, in your black and white definitions of sin and righteousness. I'm, I'm not like you. I'm nothing like you. You're saved, kind of, but I've been elevated. I'm, I'm one of those who have come to the full knowledge. I've had the experience. I am enlightened. They don't like fellowship with one another. One of the key markers of this is is that they would act out in ways that was despising of and hating towards brothers and sisters, which is why John bangs on that point so much in this letter. But friends, if we are those who walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. In other words, you are one of the group. If you're walking in the light, then you are a Jew who was with the congregation walking to the promised land. And there's not categories or levels in that group. I'll tell you one thing. God relates to no Christian outside of the the category of regenerated sinner being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's the only type of Christian he relates to. There's types of Christians who want to say that that there's some other kind of version of that. No, I'm not a sinner. I'm now a perfected saint. We'll deal with that next. Or or I'm not like the others, I'm no longer being cleansed by Jesus' blood, I'm being elevated by the Spirit's revelation. No, no, God doesn't deal with people like that. There's one way to have fellowship with God, and that is on the same playing field, on the level ground as every other Christian, in fellowship with them, you're a regenerated sinner being perfected by the blood of Jesus. You don't want that category, you don't have fellowship with God. But if you are one of those walking according to God's light, then you have fellowship with one another and with God. And I love this, that the blood of Jesus, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This blood of Jesus that cleanses us is, of course, in a large way that the Bible talks about it, a once-for-all decisive moment that we call justification. That God, when he, His Holy Spirit made you new, regeneration, He recreated your heart so that you're now a new creation, a new living being, a new spiritually alive follower of Christ. That He gave into that heart the gift of faith so that you believed in Jesus and in that moment His blood was accounted as covering you like on the mercy seat. That that before God, he sees none of your sin. He just sees the blood of his son. You are perfect in God's eyes. One, for all, one moment of salvation. And yet, as Hebrews talks about it, as John talks about it here, and as we can pull from Old Testament sacrificial imagery, there is still a sense in which the blood of Jesus is ongoingly perfecting, cleansing, empowering, and sanctifying us all. That it is, and that the the Greek is an active, ongoing verb language. The blood of Jesus, for those who walk in the light, the blood of Jesus is currently, ongoingly, actively, progressively washing you. The other book written by John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, tells us the, the story of how Jesus, in the upper room, moments before he would go and be killed, knelt down... Put on the, the towel and the dress of a servant and washed the believers' feet. He washed the apostles' feet. And it was Peter who, who arced up at that point and said, I, I don't need this. I, I refuse to have my feet washed by Jesus. That's just that's back to front. And Jesus said, Mate, this, this isn't some kind of act of elevating you guys. I'm telling you, you're dirty. You need cleansing. And Peter says, okay, well, if you've got to cleanse us because Jesus said, if I don't clean you, you have no part in me. He said, okay, then wash all of me. Clean me entirely, my head, my body. Pour it all out. And Jesus says, no, those who have bathed earlier in the day, which is a rich assumption with someone like Peter, an ex-fisherman, but okay, if someone has bathed earlier in the day, you don't need to shower every time you come into a person's house. You need only to have your feet rewashed. In chapter 13, verse 10, John reports Jesus is saying this, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, but is completely clean, except for his feet. And you are clean. See, the blood of Jesus at the moment of our justification was a bath that made us clean before the Father. And yet, ongoingly in our life, we have need for that blood of Jesus to wash our feet, to cleanse us of the day's sin, to continue to drive us closer to the throne of God when we've been walking away, that we are prone to wander and God brings us back continually, not again to save us, but to further cleanse us from sin. That's the idea of John here. So let's get back to his main point. If you claim to live in darkness but say it's not sin, you have no fellowship with God. Can you hear the, the heart begin to reassure the sighs of relief that the, the Ephesian church would have as they're hearing this. Yes, we, we're not crazy. Those people who left us are not in the truth. They are, they are deceived. They have no light from God. They claim to be in darkness while have fellowship with God. But that is not possible. I think we commit this sin also ourselves. When we tell ourselves the lie about our sin that this, whatever you're about to do, whatever you've been doing, Whatever you're, you're a little bit convicted in your heart of, about what you're thinking about, we tell ourselves, no, this isn't sin. This is okay to do. This is against the word, technically, all right? If a legalist was here in the room, he'd technically be able to show me that there's a Ten Commandment against this, but, but that's Phariseeism. You know what I mean? It's black and white Bible reading, and, and I guess I've got a relationship with God where while this is technically wrong... My relationship with God or maybe my, my higher than average holiness in general or my bigger than usual theology library or, or because of how I'm being used by God in other areas or because of my, my above average obedience in other sections of my life, it's just okay for me to do. I've got a unique relationship with God and he will turn his eye over this one. How often we think that there's just something unique about my relationship with God that makes him okay with this sin. We elevate ourselves in that moment above other Christians. That sin that you would rebuke others for if you saw them doing it, you will make paths for yourself of protected self-righteousness that this is okay for you. And in that moment, we, we sever the relationship of fellowship that we have with other Christians. Make ourselves higher than them. We would rebuke or not listen to any of their rebukes when they call us away from that sin. We elevate ourselves above them and start sowing seeds of disunity in our own hearts as we resist the Holy Spirit's work, which is to cleanse us. The lie that lies beneath every other lie, and this is is the the essence of what John's saying to us tonight, that, that beneath every other sin that we commit, there is the ultimate sin, which is the lie about the sin. The lie that was beneath the sin of eating the apple was the ultimate lie, which was don't believe God's word. There is a lie that is underneath every other sin we commit, which is that, this isn't a sin and therefore we make room to do it there's always the lie that is beneath the sin and the lie is that this for me is not sin but if we do this friends if we lie to ourselves that way make excuses for ourselves we threaten the fellowship that we have with others and we resist the work of God to cleanse us from the sin we are lying about so that's the first way that we lie about sin we say it simply isn't sin. And then secondly, look to, look to verse 8. This is where we start saying, or the false teachers start saying, sin is actually no longer my nature. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, there had been a, there had been a, a, a false teaching that had started being taught by Serenthus, by others, which would be that either it was from my birth, I've never, I've never actually had a sinful nature since birth, or they would say, actually, it's since my conversion that I've not had an experience of a nature of sin, or they would say, after some experience, a Gnostic elevation that happened afterwards, I, I no longer have a nature that is inclined towards sin. They, they would maybe uh, 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 mutate or evolve this lie in whatever way it would come, but the essence of it is that the Gnostic boast was, I'm enlightened. I'm above temptation to sin. I don't struggle with that. I don't have anything in me that desires that anymore. I'm above it. I'm not like you. I'm without sin. All the Pelagian heresy that we need to be familiar with, which would say that the, the, the denial of original sin, that, that no, we don't agree with the Bible and, and Calvin that would teach that, that all men are born in the sin of Adam and we are imputed with and reckoned under God as guilty because of the sin of Adam. They don't like that. They would say, actually, no, we're all born in a state of uprightness and perfection like Adam was in the garden. And it's up to our own life and our decisions whether or not we sin and fall or whether we keep ourselves upright in a state of grace before God. That's the Pelagian heresy. That there is such a thing as somebody who has no sin. Or it's the, the, the lie of sinless perfectionism that the, some of the Wesleyans had fallen into or that is rife amongst some Pentecostal circles that say that there's, there's some kind of second blessing after justification, the baptism of the Spirit or something that you can get at a conference when the apostle touches you, whatever it may be, that say that I've now passed into a kind of Christian living and I've chatted with these guys. I, I'm in a kind of Christian living that I actually don't have sin left in me. I remember debating one of those guys and giving him all that I had from 1 John. And I was thrashing around these verses. And he was just saying that this all applies to non-Christians and, 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 and whatnot. And he was defending the, all of this stuff. And, and I basically just came to the point where I said, Mate, you say you don't have sin. The word tells me that means you have no truth. I don't know why I'm trying to bring the truth to this conversation. You're outside of it. You're outside of the kingdom. I need nothing more to do with you felt pretty proud of myself, walked away, and just a couple of weekends later, he was the photographer at my best friend's wedding, which was super awkward. And I wasn't at all sorry. Amen? There you go. <laughs> but this is a rife error. And here's the irony in all of those errors. Here's the absolute irony that they totally miss in every one of those lines. They think that they're boasting a superior portion of the Spirit because they don't recognize in themselves a proclivity to sin but it is the first proof and evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit that you recognize that you have an indwelling nature of sin the broadest, brightest way that you can possibly say I don't have the Holy Spirit is by saying the idiotic statement I don't have sin within me there's no clearer way to evidence the absolute lack of truth and lack of the Holy Spirit than saying that. But it's that that they claim is actually a proof of their superiority. John would have nothing of it. It's not actually a sign of self-improvement to claim a lack of sin nature. It's actually a sign of self-deception. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's no truth in us if we say that. You may deceive yourself if you think that, but you do not deceive God. His truth stands. And friends, the truth is this, that every single Christian wages on the inner war, continues on the inner battle, mortifies the inner man, struggles with the inner sin, has to starve the inner flesh. Every Christian, this side of the resurrection, goes on constantly in struggling with the remnant of the flesh that is within us. And therefore, to claim that you have none of that indwelling sin still is utter folly and self-damnation. So, the Christian process of holiness is walking in the light, and that is not one of denying sin, but acknowledging and confessing sin. So he says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all sin unrighteousness he is faithful and just and he forgives us and cleanses us two things about God is that he is faithful and just faithful means that he keeps his promises to which we obviously have to ask which promises He is faithful that he keeps his promises and that he is just so that, so that in your confession and in his forgiveness, he's, he's not committing a travesty against the laws of eternity. He, he's not sliding you in under some loophole through the law of God. He is perfectly, as John uh, Romans 3 says, that he is upholding his own justice. Having discharged your full condemnation and punishment, everything you deserve to Jesus, he is now free to forgive the sinners. So he can be both just and fair and righteous, and yet the one that lets the sinner be called just and righteous and good. And that is what he does in us, in Jesus Christ, that by faith we receive all that Jesus has done and we become righteous in God's sight. He is just and he's faithful to his promises. Now, Now, here's the promises that sinners, you and me who are Christians growing in our faith, Here's what we need to hear. The promises of God are not simply a punched ticket at the beginning of your Christian life that you'll get into heaven one day. The new covenant is greater than that. Speaking to the Jews of what the new covenant would be with them and all of spiritual Israel in Ezekiel 36, God says this, I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see that that was not a commandment? That was not a commandment that you must obey my rules. It was not a commandment that you must walk in uprightness. It was a promise. The gospel is full of promises. It's a promise that God will make us clean. God will make us walk in his uprightness. God will cleanse us from our idols. God will make us careful to obey his rules. God will keep that promise that he has made to every one of us in Jesus Christ without conditions. But one of the ways that God makes us obedient to his rules is by making us confessing of our sin. So that as we confess, God fulfills that promise and ongoingly cleanses us, washes us, grows us and makes us more and more like his son. And he does that in two ways. The first is relational, the second is practical. In verse 9, he is faithful and just to first of all forgive us our sins and second of all, cleanse us from that unrighteousness. He's faithful and is just. He will fulfil His promises towards you that He justly reckoned through Jesus Christ atonement. He will forgive you. The relationship that you have with God, if you have sin in your not if, since you have sin in your life that you need to take before God and confess. He will welcome you to the throne of grace. He will not send you out for having sinned to confess. He will welcome you. He will forgive you and the relationship will be restored. How many of us truly think of God that way? That he beckons us to come. That we hear the Father's footsteps and we seek to run and hide like Adam and Eve. But the new covenant, the gospel of grace, is that the Father draws near to us to bring us to himself. To fulfill his own promises. There is never a need to draw back from the Father if he is your Father through Jesus Christ. For in him, through Jesus, there is nothing but grace for us. Draw near. The relationship will be restored. He will forgive you. Maybe, maybe you struggle with that and you're thinking, if I confess this sin... This sin, that sin, if I confess the thing that I did, which was a a blunder like no other, or maybe it was going back to something the hundredth time that I thought I had finally given up, will God forgive that? The answer from the Apostle John is a resounding yes, and I don't need to know what you've done. If you're a Christian, there's no sin that puts you outside of the covenant of God's grace in Jesus. No sin. No sin except refusing to come to god through jesus but as long as you will come there will be forgiveness and because the new covenant just gets better it's not just that he will forgive you in the relationship but he will practically work into you a cleansing from sin how many of us sort of thought that the new covenant was he'll put up with my sins and i'll get to heaven one day Or or he'll put up with me and he won't like me or love me. And now we've just heard, no, he'll forgive you. He loves you. He brings you in his presence. And how good is that? Great. Well, now God's going to put up with my sin my whole life. So very gracious. John says, don't go any further. Come back. Read the book. Remember the gospel. Read the promises upon which the new covenant was forged. It is this, that you will be forgiven And God will activate his spirit in your life to actually bring about greater holiness. How many of us really and truly want that? How many of us will bring our our sin to Jesus as long as he promises to forgive it and then give us a license to do it again? But the new covenant is that he makes us zealous, holy, righteous people. He forgives us and he cleanses us from all sin, all unrighteousness, all iniquity. And then we see in verse 10, this is, the, this is the third point that he makes, which is that another way to lie about sin, there's, there's one way to lie, which is saying, I, I, uh, it's not sin, so I'll keep doing it. There's the second way to lie, which is saying, well, uh, you know, I just don't have the nature within me anymore to sin. Or thirdly, there's a way to sin, which is to say, that is sin, I have a sinful nature, but I didn't do that thing. In other words, to reject and to deny what we have done, to fail to confess it and bring it to the Lord. So verse 10 says this, if we say we have not sinned, so this is now instances of actual specific sins committed in life. If we say we have not sinned, we did not do that sin, or in the extreme case, we did never do a sin. If we say that, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. On the far reaching end of the spectrum, of course, this was the Gnostic lie that I have never sinned. I am a perfect being. There is nothing between me and God. We are all one in one. Nothing separates me and God. And therefore, they they denied that fundamental truth which God has been saying since Genesis 3. Every relationship, every way that God relates, every word that God has spoken since Genesis 3 has assumed or stated that humans are sinners in need of a gracious Savior. Therefore, to, to deny that you ever have sinned, To deny that you're one of those people who need such a savior is, is to remove yourself from the group of people who get to receive any of God's word, any of God's life, any of God's light. You disqualify yourself from anything God's truth would say by saying, I've never done sin. Let us never sit ourselves in that category. To do that, he says, we make him a liar because he constantly says that we sin and you say you haven't. You make him a liar and his word is not in us. But there's a way for us to do this as well, that we deny that we have done certain specific sins. You might hear the preacher say, you might read the, the word tell you, you might hear your friend tell you you need to go and daily before the Lord confess your sin. Whatever sin you've got on your heart, confess it to the Lord. And between you and God, you tell him, you tell yourself, I did not do that sin. You just can't front it. You can't bring it to him. You can't accept it. You try to impress God with holiness that is built on the lie that you didn't do that sin, and that is no holiness. You try and develop a sanctification to outweigh the fact that you sinned, but that sanctification is built on the lie that you didn't do that sin, and therefore it's not sanctification. The inner nature that we have to lie about what we did, to cover ourselves with fig leaves, to deny before God that we have actually done those sins that he's bringing up in our hearts, is to put ourselves outside of the stream of God's grace and his word. He says, confess that sin and I'll be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. And you say, I didn't look at that. I didn't talk to him that way. I didn't disrespect my spouse that way. I didn't steal that. I didn't dodge out the tax of. Re- Returns. I didn't actually treat that person badly. I didn't search that again. I didn't relate to them that way. I didn't flirt with them. I didn't do any of those things. As as we cover it up, then we are stopping ourselves from being able to come into the throne room of God and confess. He won't receive, the prophets would say in the Old Testament. He won't receive your sacrifices, he won't receive your worship. He won't receive your praises and all that you want to bring to him to tip the scale back in your favor. He will receive none of it if you're bringing it with red hands that are yet to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Do not lie to ourselves saying, I didn't do that specific sin. The word of God is not in you. The effective, acting, powerful words of God. Look at the end of of verse 10 with me. He says, if you say you have not sinned, In other words, if you're in a state of refusing to confess, if you're in a state where you're refusing to acknowledge your sin, if you're in a state where you're refusing to repent of your sin, then the Word of God, either in an absolute or in a lesser manner, is not at work within you. If you say you have no sin, the Word of God is not in you whatsoever. And if you're lying about specific sins, then the word of God is not at work within you. How does John know that? How can he look at somebody who is denying sin and say the word is not in you? It's because he knows what the word of God does. He knows that the effect of the word of God in someone's heart is to acknowledge, confess sin to God, and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's what the word does when it is rich in our souls, when it is Running through the veins of our heart, that's what it does to somebody. Therefore, when he hears Serenthus with all his miracles, all his false teachings, with all his followers, or anybody like him say, I just don't have sin to confess, he can look at them and say, the, the seed of God's word, that, that powerful block of uranium is not at you, is not in you. If it was, it would be having astounding results. It will be shining out of you through confession and through repentance and through holiness, and I'm not seeing it. Friends, the Word of God is not at work within us if we are not able to confess and acknowledge sin. We often think that recognizing our sin would probably take away our assurance we just can't acknowledge to ourselves, we can't confess to the Lord in our prayer, we can't confess the sin that we have committed because that'll that'll be a, a torpedo in the hull of our assurance. I won't be able to be sure of my salvation before the Lord if I realize to myself that I committed that sin. But in John's thinking, knowledge and confession of our sin is the first sign of God's word being in us. It is in fact a a sign of being in the light that you recognize darkness. How many Christians would, would start making a profession of faith and then start walking in the light and, and everything is different and God just gives you that fiery first love of Christian regeneration and, and you're making strides in holiness and then the Holy Spirit interrupts and, and starts showing you sin. Now, now it's time for that, that repentance deal, that conviction of sin. And none of us like it, but, but it is good for our souls. And, and how many of us, we, we get to that process and then, and then people start growing and realizing they have more sin than they have ever reckoned before. They didn't even realize they were this much of a sinner before they were a Christian. <laughs> what am I to think? Look at how filthy, dark, unlike God I am. Friends, you only recognize the sin when it is in the light. How many of us actually need to realize that the sign of the inward struggle? The recognition of our sin in our life is a sign that we are walking in God's light. We do not pull away and start saying, I see shadows. I see darkness around me and in some portions of my life, I must be out of the kingdom. No, John would have us realize I must be in the light. How good and gracious a thing it is that God shines his light and exposes my shades and shadows. One commentator that I was reading this week put it in the most beautiful way. It, it, it blew my mind. Not a lot of things do that, but this guy did it. He said, even when you're in the presence of the midday blazing sun, and that's what it can feel like, being in the presence of a holy God, and we get discouraged because we realize that we're casting a shadow, shouldn't I be so enlightened? Should I, shouldn't I be so holy now that there's no shadow about me? This commentator said, in the midst, in the presence of the blazing midday sun, even a flame casts a shadow. It's true. I looked it up. looked it up on physics book. Flame does cast shadow if, if the light being shone onto it is so bright that it outshines even the light within that flame. How many of us would feel like we're on fire for the Lord and he's, he's doing great things in our heart but then why do we recognize so many shadows, so much darkness? It is because the one to whom we have come and are walking in the light of is so much more holy than you. Friends, it's a terrible thing to get to the point in your Christian life Where you stop recognizing the painful, convicting, terrible parts of your heart. John would reassure those Christians, as I wish to reassure us tonight, that the gospel is good news for sinners. The day you get saved and every day of your Christian walk, God presumes, assumes, and declares that you are still yet far from perfect. And He saved you with His eyes open, He knew you were going to be where you are today when he died for you. He knew you were going to be where you are today when he saved you. He didn't save you on some, some hidden clause that you would be perfect by October 2021. And if you're not, well, he'll, he'll continue to deal with you. He'll extend the contract, but my goodness, he'll be disappointed. No, friends, God from all of eternity knows exactly what sins you have committed and calls you to confess them to him that he may sanctify you further and bring you further into the joy of fellowship with his people. And if you're not a believer tonight, if you recognize that maybe you're committing the sin of denying your sin. Maybe you're committing the sin of never confessing or repenting of sin. Maybe, maybe you know your sin, you live in it, and you deny that it really will keep you from God. All of these lies need to be cast down by the thundering lightning of God's truth coming from John. Repent of your sin. Bring it to God who delights to forgive and cleanse sinners. And this day, be saved because Jesus bled and died for sinners. If that is you, then you're invited to come. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the word of John, which is indeed the word of your spirit, the word of your dear and beloved son, who is the light from heaven into the world, who is the light and the truth and the grace and the glory of God shine down to us. Father God, we thank you for this letter, which would reassure which would convict of sin and yet bind up with the balm of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for this letter, which which commands us away from sin and yet also consoles us that the one we come to is a savior who died for sinners. Pray, Lord God, that we would have this mind among ourselves, that God in flesh, Jesus, has poured out full justice, has brought about full righteousness in our place that the Father no longer looks on us expecting or demanding perfection, but has made for himself a people who will follow the light towards the glory that will come. Lord God, reassure us, encourage us, strengthen us to walk more and more according to that light and this day bring our sin to you through prayer. Confess to you in honesty those things that we have done which we hold on to. Confess to you the false attempts of sanctification that we've been striving after to try and impress you, Lord, just bring us to our knees in confession of sin that you might be seen as the one true light. We, as those sinners, regenerated, following after you. And God, anyone who is still in the darkness, anyone who still lives according to lies, anybody who still denies themselves the possibility of a saviour because they have not reckoned with their sin, please, Lord, do that all humbling work of opening their eyes to their guilt and then give them the all-glorious joy of finding in Jesus the answer to their guilt. Lord, please save souls, sanctify those who know and love you and make us a church strong in the word of God. And everybody said, amen.